If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Paul was a prisoner when he wrote this letter. We call it an epistle. He wrote it to the believers in Colossae, the town of Colossae. And people from Colossae are known as Colossians. Therefore, the name of the book is Colossians. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, for which I am in chains. So he, he lets them know that he, in fact, is a prisoner of the empire at this point. Um, by the way, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, uh, Colossians is known as one of the prison epistles. That is, these are epistles, letters that Paul wrote when he was a prisoner in Rome. And it may well be, and I think that it is, that Paul wrote these letters about the same time from the same circumstances. But the Colossians are a bit different. It's a young church um, in Colossae, which is a smaller town. It's on the banks of the Lycus River in southeast in uh, Asia Minor. Um, it's not an important town. It used to be, but history has sort of passed it by, and now it's the next town north of it is Laodicea. It's 10 miles away, and then six miles past that is Hierapolis. Um, what's interesting is that all indications are Paul had never been to Colossae, and all things being equal, probably never did go to Colossae. Um, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So he's heard about them, but he has, hasn't actually met them. If you look at verses 7 and 8, it seems that the church was probably started by a man named Epaphras. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Uh, by the way, Epaphras is mentioned again near the end of the letter, and the indications are he's no longer there. He started the church, um, but he has since moved on. And we actually find out in Philemon, he's a prisoner with Paul. So they had been missionaries, if you wish, at about the same time. Epaphras had gone to Colossae, Paul had not. Um, by the way, Epaphras also went to Laodicea and Hierapolis. So those three towns, sort of a line, uh, Epaphras went and began, he started the churches there. Um, so Paul's never been to Colossae. Why is he writing these people? These are not people that he knows. He hasn't been there. He didn't start the church there. In contrast, like to First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, you know, Ephesians, you know, he, he doesn't know these people per se. Uh, he's only heard about them. So why is he writing these people? Well, it becomes clear if you read through the whole book of Colossians that there is a problem and Paul writes to them to address this problem. And the question is, what is the problem? Well, what has happened is, wherever Paul would go on missionary journeys and would preach and start churches, people from Jerusalem would be behind him saying to the Gentiles, oh, that's wonderful, you've become Christians, but you lack something. You need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law, then you'll be like a genuine Christian. Um, the problem, and it, Paul deals with this in chapter 2, is that the people from Jerusalem had in fact 
created a philosophy, if you wish. They were passing off what God had given to them as a philosophy. In a world of competing philosophies, you know, Stoicism, Epicureanism, you know, all these different things, the Jews are like, yes, we have our philosophy too. Judaism is our philosophy. And Paul is saying, well, yeah, you know, it's a philosophy, um, and therefore it really lacks something. It isn't the truth. Dave has mentioned this before. Um, there are times when it becomes clear to me that it must at times become clear to others that there's something silly about making a religion out of truth. Well, it's equally true to say it is ridiculous to make a philosophy out of truth. The Colossians are believers. They are in Christ. They have the full riches of complete understanding, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This philosophy now is trying to take them captive. They have new life in Christ, and suddenly Judaism is trying to fence them in with all these rules and regulations, the basic principles of the world, as Paul puts it. The reality is, as he tells them in chapter 2, you are alive in Christ. You have new life. This isn't a new philosophy. This isn't a set of beliefs that structure everything. You are alive. You have life in Christ. In chapter 2, if you want to turn there, uh, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the light of the reality of being alive in Christ, Paul must explain what God did about our sins. He forgave all our sins. By the way, you'll notice in verse number 13, he starts out, your sins, your sinful nature, he made you alive. And then he says, our sins. He forgave us all our sins. It is in Christ that both Jews and Gentiles are forgiven. It's not as though, okay, Jews have a philosophy, Judaism, and Gentiles, okay, they'll do this Christian thing over here. It is in Christ that we have been made alive. And how is it that God forgave us our sins? How is it that he delivered us? Well, in verses 14 and 15, uh, there were two barriers that were between us and receiving forgiveness. One is the written code, Judaism, and the other is the powers and authorities. God canceled the first on the cross, and he defeated the second on the cross as well. But I'm getting ahead because we're going to be looking at chapter 1. To get to what we find in chapter 2, there are two major emphases. The first is the centrality of Christ, that Christ is Lord. It is the focus of the opening paragraphs of his epistle. And secondly, he emphasizes the status of the Colossians, that they are now in Christ. If you take these together, then what we come away with is that what Paul presents is a view of Christ um, 
that the Jews had actually given to the law. So they are replacing Christ with the law. When in fact Christ came, he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the central figure of human history. Secondly, he presents a redefinition of God. One that troubles many people even to this day. That Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord. He is the center. We'll get to this in a bit. Um, Paul deals with these issues in other letters, in the other prison epistles as well. And so we should see Colossians in that context. There is a difference though. As far as we can tell, the Jews from Jerusalem, who say Judaism is the way, this philosophy, they haven't made it to Colossae yet. So this letter is more of a preventative, a prophylactic to keep you know, to prepare the Colossian believers against this philosophy that the Jews will try to impose on them. Um, Paul knew that wherever the gospel was preached, the Jews would soon be behind there trying to corrupt it. And so now he is trying to arm the Colossians to prepare them to deal with this. And so he maintains the following, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, that Jesus died and was raised and ascended into heaven and the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given. A new covenant has been ushered in. We've just had the Lord's Supper. It is the new covenant in his blood. The people of Jesus Christ are the people of God. They are the heirs of of the promises made to Abraham. And the gospel is not simply for those sinners, the pagans, for all people, for Jews and Gentiles alike. I remember many years ago, my father uh, visiting someone and presenting the gospel in their home. And at one point, my dad asked, who do you think Jesus died for? And the man replied, well, for those sinners. Well, no, he died for us sinners. And for the Jews who are like, well, yeah, that's, that's for the Gentiles. Paul's like, no, it's for both Jews and Gentiles alike. As Zib read to us today from uh, Romans 11, that uh, we are grafted in, that it is God's people, the Jews, but many of them have rejected him. So if you're writing to the Colossians, people you've never met, and you're trying to protect them from this thing coming in, what do you do? How does Paul organize his letter? Well, interestingly enough, he begins with prayer and thanksgiving. Let's read, if you would follow along, beginning at verse number 9 of chapter 1. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father." who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. 
For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul gives three reasons for gratitude, for thankfulness. The first is the new exodus, the second is creation, and the third is the new creation. Let's begin with the exodus. If you look at at the second part of verse number 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One might say, Paul, you're, you're complicating the issue. You know, simply put, what you're saying is that God has, in fact, caused the Colossians to hear the gospel, to receive the gospel, and they have been saved. They have been redeemed. And yeah, that's what Paul is saying. But he puts it the way he does because he's using an Old Testament imagery. The redemptive event in the Old Testament is the Exodus, when God delivered Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, and brought them through the wilderness and then to the promised land. So he says, the saints. He uses the word the saints, which means the holy ones. It's a regular term that's used for God's people, those who are set apart from the world. In Exodus 19, although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then he speaks of inheritance. And in the story of Israel, the inheritance is the promised land, that which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he talks about the kingdom of light. And now we know, oh, okay, he's not, he's using the metaphor of Exodus, but he means something else. Uh, From the kingdom of darkness, we could say Egypt, to the kingdom of light, Canaan, no, actually he's talking about something quite different. Light tells us that he's speaking here of salvation and not of the promised land as such. Who has qualified you. How do you get to be an heir? I mean, do you have to pass a test? I mean, how is it that you become an heir and that you get to inherit something? Well, it really does not depend on you. If you are the child of someone or if someone adopts you, you can become the heir of that person. So God has adopted the Colossians as his sons and daughters. He has rescued them. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Again, this is the language of the Exodus. It refers to that time when God miraculously delivered his people after four centuries of being slaves. So the dominion of darkness is symbolized by Egypt. The kingdom of the son he loves is symbolized by Canaan. But the expression, the son he loves, points to several things. I think if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might be thinking about the baptism of Jesus, where the spirit comes on him as he comes out of the water and says, this is the son whom I love. Um, But if you were listening today, when Gia read to us, the first verse she read to us, Hosea 11.1, that Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I called my son. The first part of the verse is, when Israel was a child, I loved him, 
and out of Egypt I have called my son. Historically, yes, God called Israel out of Egypt. But then it applies to his son, whom he loves. You see, what Israel failed to do, Jesus was sent into the world to do. Both referred to as his firstborn son. I'll get to that in a minute. But Israel completely failed. They were, in fact, to be the solution to the problem of evil, but they became the problem itself. It is Jesus who comes into the world to bring us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a word that in many ways has become too Christianized for its own good. Um, For the Israelites, they understood what redemption was, not necessarily in terms of forgiveness, but of being rescued, of being purchased out of slavery and brought into freedom. It is in the new covenant that we begin to see that redemption involves forgiveness. And Jeremiah sees this looking ahead and prophetically in Jeremiah 31. When he speaks of the new covenant, it also involves forgiveness. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Paul gives thanks and wants the Colossians and us to give thanks to God because, in fact, he has redeemed them. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven our sins. Again, Paul, you take all these verses to say that. Why don't you just say God saved you, he redeemed you, because he's using a picture, a story, that of the Exodus, and including the Colossians in that story. They are a part of the new Exodus. We are a part of the new Exodus, in which God has delivered us out of Egypt, if you wish, the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So the language is very much that of Exodus. The saints, the inheritance, uh, the kingdom of light, the dominion of darkness, the kingdom of the son he loves, redemption, all of that is from Exodus. Over the years, I've met a lot of people um, who, like myself, were raised in a Christian home. And in many ways, they feel cheated. They feel like they didn't get the good story. You know, that they couldn't give a good testimony. You know, I used to be this terrible person, and God saved me and has redeemed me, and now I no longer do the things I used to do. And, you know, if you never did those things... It's not like you can stand up and say, well, I used to do those things, I don't anymore. And, and we feel cheated. We should not. We are part of the exodus. 
we were, we were born into this world into darkness, into the dominion of darkness. And we have been redeemed by God's grace. Just as he did with Israel, we have the ten plagues, we have the opening of the Red Sea, the, the pillar of cloud by day, of fire by night, all that. When God saved us, it is just as miraculous as that. And rather than feeling cheated, we should see ourselves as part of the story. We are part of the new exodus. You are part of the new exodus. You have been rescued. Um, You have been supernaturally rescued. And now you are a child of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is creation. He gives thanks to the to God because Christ is in fact the one who created the world. If you look at beginning in, uh, let's see where are we here, uh, verse number fifteen, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It is an amazing passage. It's perhaps one of the most important passages on the person of Christ that we find in the epistles. It should be studied and studied in context. But I would say, this is scary to say, you could almost take these verses out of the context and, and gain tremendous benefit from them. But Paul wrote these words at this point in the letter for a particular reason. You know, he didn't say, well, you can say this anytime you want. He writes that after talking about the Exodus, he now talks about Christ as the one who created the world. So we see him here in this passage in two ways. First of all, he is the creator. He is the Lord of creation. But secondly, he is the Lord of the church, the new creation. In the same way that we have been brought out of darkness into light, we, have, we were old creatures and now we have been made new creations. The point of all of this, simply put, is Christ is Lord. That Jesus is God. He is God's agent in creation. He is the one through whom the world was made. And he is the one who sustains the world. Which means that Jesus is not just some religious figure, uh, some philosopher, Um, a good teacher. Uh, No. Um, And what Paul writes here really lays the foundation for his attack on this view of Judaism as a philosophy, which they've turned it into. He lays the foundation that Jesus isn't just a nice guy who said wonderful things. He is, in fact, the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. Verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Just so we are clear, he, at the beginning of the passage, refers back to Jesus. Okay? And Jesus is the one who was called 
out of Egypt. Uh, Ruth read this to us last Sunday, on Christmas Sunday, how that Joseph took Mary and Jesus to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill them. But at a certain point, an angel came and said, okay, you can go back home to fulfill the passage in Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. But he is the son whom God loves. He is the fulfillment of what Israel failed to do. So he begins this passage in verse number 15 by making it clear that he's writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what what does he tell us about him? He is the image of the invisible God. In John, we are told that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The Son, the one and only, he has made the Father known. If you remember the creation story, going back to the beginning, Adam, the human being, was the climax of the work of creation, the week of creation. In the same way, Jesus, the human being, is the climax of the history of creation. He is the starting point of the new creation. We have a new exodus and we have a new creation. He is, in fact, the second Adam. He has eternally the nature of God. But let's go back a minute. Um, Man was made in the image of God. And as one Old Testament theologian has written, in the ancient world, kings, to indicate their claim and dominion, would erect an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire. They didn't have the internet, you know, they didn't have Zoom, you know. So what they would do is have statues made of them, probably made them look better than they actually did, but that image was put there almost as to say, I'm watching you, you know, you belong to me, you're a part of my empire. In the same way, this man writes, man is placed on earth in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. Now, God is everywhere, but God is the invisible God. So he has put us here who bear his image here on the planet to basically say, this is God's. Okay, this belongs to God. Okay. That is our function. It's supposed to be. But Adam and Eve sinned, and we fell away from our purpose, our divine purpose. The Old Testament account doesn't make us God's. Okay, it doesn't deify deify us, but it does, in fact, give us dignity that we, in fact, though we are lower than the angels, have been given dominion over all creation. This is what we are supposed to do. What we find in Jesus is one who had existence before creation. He is God, but he also has existence in creation. He is a human being. He is the firstborn over all creation. And this creates some problems for a lot of people because it seems to indicate that Jesus was created by the Father. So it's not a trinity. It's basically the Father who creates Jesus. And then he also creates the Holy Spirit and sends him on the day of Pentecost. Um, No. No. The term firstborn is something that we find in the Old Testament, okay? And it is used, first of all, of Israel. In Exodus 4, Moses is told, Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, 
Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And if you remember the story, what is the tenth plague? All the firstborn of Israel, or of Egypt, are killed. It's not an arbitrary choice. Israel is my firstborn, has priority. Uh, Let him go. You won't? Okay, then I will kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Firstborn is also a title given to the Messiah in Psalm 89. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. It speaks of priority. Okay, It speaks of priority in terms of time and rank. And I think it is the rank that Paul is getting to, not time. Like, oh, firstborn, so he's just a creation like the rest of us. No, he is above all creation. The New English Bible has, for John 1.1, 1, 1, when all things began, the word already was. We know in the, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. But when the world was created, yeah, the word was already there. It is because that he was already here that the son has supreme rank. He is, in fact, Lord. And that he is Lord is confirmed by verse number 16, if you'll look at it. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He isn't simply part of the created order. Oh, God said, okay, I'm going to create the world. I'll begin by creating Jesus. Okay, and then, then Jesus can create the world or I'll, I'll do it myself. Okay, he, in fact, is the one was there before all things, and he created all things. Um, It's a a totality. All things. Things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. One writer put it this way, wherever you look or whatever realities you think of, you discover entities which, even if they do not acknowledge the fact, owe their very existence to Christ. They are his handiwork. So it's not dichotomies, visible versus invisible, okay? Or material versus spiritual, or public versus private, external versus internal. No, all things, all things were created. He is Lord over all. And then he goes on to talk about power structures. And in today's world, this is an important issue. It always has been, but it's sort of come to the forefront. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Um, Some people think that what Paul's talking about is supernatural things, things we cannot see, uh, the demonic or the angelic, things that we cannot perceive. Um, I would suggest to you that, in fact, Paul sees all earthly powers as having unearthly powers behind them, okay? Now, all things are under God's authority, but there is a battle going on, the demonic versus versus God. And so there are those whom God has put in positions of authority, and Romans 13, 
They've all been put there by God's authority. But the demonic then reaches in and tries to tweak them and to pervert them and has done so throughout human history. No power structures are independent of Christ. Let me say that again. No power structures are independent of Christ. We may not think so because whoever's in power isn't someone we like. Their policies may be something we think are really repulsive. Uh, All power structures are under Christ. They are in rebellion against him, but they are under Christ. All things were created for him, or by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul summarizes what he's been saying, that Christ, in fact, is the creator. And now he's going to move on to a new reality, that is that Christ is Lord over the new creation. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Here Paul moves from God creating the world, Christ creating the world, to now he is in fact Lord over a new creation, the new church, or the church of God. Um, Remember Paul says, he gives thanks for three things the new exodus, creation, and now the new creation. But one might say, what's the deal? I mean, why the exodus and why the new creation? Well, Paul spells it out in verses 21 to 23. Look at it, if you would. Once you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. As we conclude, I would point out what Paul is trying to say here is that we are to give thanks to God for redeeming us, the exodus, for creating us, and for recreating us and bringing us a new creation. And Christ is over all things. He is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to be resurrected. We've looked at this before. Yes, other people were raised from the dead, but then they died. Jesus was resurrected. He was transformed. His physical body was transformed. And one day we will experience the same thing. But he is, in fact, over all things. Again, he's not just, you know, we have all these different schools of philosophy, and here's the Christian school over here. No. He is Lord over all. He is the truth. Everything that God has done, he has done through his son. And Paul knows that the Colossians have heard the gospel. They have believed the gospel. He wants them to continue in the gospel. And that gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So Paul begins by praying and giving thanks for the Colossians as he writes to these people he's never met before. He's heard about them, probably from Epaphras, if they're both prisoners, he's heard about them. Um, by the way, just a side note, um, Paul also, also wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. He mentions it in chapter 4. He says, you know, I wrote them a letter, and, you know, when you guys get done reading this letter, you can send that up to them, and the letter I wrote to them, they can send to you. Well, the epistle to the Laodiceans is not part of Scripture. And so it is not the person who is writing who is inspired, it is the writing itself. And so the epistle to the Laodiceans is lost to us, it's not part of Scripture. But the letter to the Colossians is part of Scripture, and a very powerful part, as Paul expresses to these one would almost say total strangers, the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. He created the world. The world fell into sin by Adam and Eve's rebellion. We are under the dominion of darkness, and God has rescued us as he did Israel out of Egypt. So he has rescued us from darkness, from sin. And he did this through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. What's fascinating, if you get to chapter 2, um, how did he defeat the power structures? Um, how did he cancel out the philosophy that people were trying to impose? He did this by dying, which makes no sense if you think about it. He did it by dying the most degrading death possible in the ancient world, by being crucified. And we would just say, logically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord. He created the world. And by his death and his resurrection, he has brought about a new humanity, the church. And Paul says to these people, give thanks. You're part of the new exodus. God created you, and now he has, by his grace, recreated you. You are the new humanity. And this is all because Jesus Christ is Lord. In what Paul wants for the Colossians, and I'm convinced if you were alive today, he would say he wants for us, is that this truth would inform us, it would form us, but ultimately it would transform the way that we think of what it means to be a child of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, the truth of the gospel, well, it's so familiar to us that it loses the reality of what it means and the power of it that Jesus Christ is Lord. This Christmas season, we heard it read last Sunday that Joseph has told you to give the child the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. There's more to the story than that, as Paul points out, that the coming of Jesus is the new exodus. Like Moses, he has led us out of bondage, 
out of darkness into the kingdom of light. And while some may bemoan the fact that they didn't live wicked lives, sinful lives to be delivered out of, uh, we in fact were in darkness. Even if we lived very, very, very good lives, we were still in darkness and needed to be rescued. And Jesus has done this. He who made the world is now making a new world, a new creation, the church. And Paul says we are to give thanks, and we do give thanks for your saving grace, your redemption, and that Jesus is Lord over all. Frankly, there are times when we despair of thinking that that's even true. When we see such things around us, wickedness, power structures that abuse people, and such, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is Lord. I suspect that our brothers and sisters around the world today who are being persecuted for their faith have a far greater confidence that Jesus is Lord than we do. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. May we see that Jesus is Lord. And as we come to the end of this year and a new year begins, may we live in the light of that reality. May it transform the way we think and more than that, the way that we live. I thank you for bringing us safely through another year. For being with us every step of the way. And now as we step into the unknown, another year, which begins tomorrow, may we trust that you are in fact with us. You've gone ahead, you've prepared the way. It doesn't mean that it will be a smooth ride, but Jesus is Lord over all, over all things, visible and invisible. The power structures, whether they do good or bad, Jesus is still Lord. And may we trust you in that. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Again, we thank you for loving us and for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.